Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 259th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast, which is now but one of four podcasts that comprise the Hollywood Reporters podcast network, the others being It Happened in Hollywood, Behind the Screen, and TV's Top 5. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of Hollywood's greatest character actors, a man who has been acting on the big screen for the last 52 years in films such as 1969's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, 1971's The Lifeguard, 1985's Mask, 1993's Gettysburg, 1998's The Big Lebowski, 2000's The Contender, 2005's Thank You for Smoking, and 2009's Up in the Air. But is only now, at the age of 74, getting his due winning the Best Supporting Actor National Board of Review Award and garnering Best Supporting Actor Critics' Choice and Screen Actors Guild Award nominations, and also having his handprints and footprints immortalized in front of the TCL Chinese Theater last week, in recognition of his powerful portrayal of Bradley Cooper's character's older brother in Cooper's acclaimed 2018 version of A Star is Born, the great Sam Elliott. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 74-year-old and I discussed the roots of his acting ambitions— how the sudden death of his father, who had doubted his future in acting, impacted his career path, why the first film in which he was the central star, Lifeguard, was also his last, how, with only a few notable exceptions like Mask, he came to be typecast as the strong, silent type, often mounted on a horse and or out in the West, most famously in The Big Lebowski, what sparked his recent late-career renaissance that led to A Star is Born, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Sam, thank you so much for coming in. It's great to have you. And we always begin with just a few basics on this podcast. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born and raised in Sacramento, California in 1944. My dad worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service for the Department of Interior for the federal government. My mom was a school teacher. At that time, she was a I guess she was a housewife, and she was a mom. Yes. And she was still going to school. She graduated from the University of Texas at El Paso, which is where they all came from. Nice. Making me the only one that was born in somewhere outside of Texas, which I found it very hard to live down over the years. (laughs) My dad was constantly reminding me that I was a prune picker. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so growing up, we're— movies or TV or theater, a big part of your life, what were the kinds of things that you most responded to? It was never really theater. I went to, there was a music theater there in Sacramento, which I remember seeing Rumpelstiltskin, and I was quite (laughs) taken with that. And my folks used to go to the state fair every year, and they were involved in these horticultural exhibits. My dad had a greenhouse that he built, and he grew these award-winning begonias Uh and and there was a theater there, and I remember going and seeing plays there, and some woman came down. I was watching a rehearsal. There was a lot of time hanging around mm-hmm. the fair while they were setting all this stuff up. And I remember watching this play and seeing it and being fascinated. It was kind of a dress rehearsal, I think, because everybody was in full stage mm-hmm. makeup. And in those days, it was heavy. This was the 50s. <laughs> it was very yeah. heavy stuff. Right. And this gal came down and talked to me, and she asked me if I was interested in getting involved in the children's theater. And I think she later spoke to my mom about it as well. But I was afraid to do that, so I didn't do that. Uh And at the same period of time, I was going to a place called the Sequoia Theater, which was the neighborhood theater, Uh watching a lot of Saturday matinees. Uh And that was really the thing that captivated me. Yeah. No reason for you to particularly remember this, but we did an interview in New York maybe four or five years ago tied to I'll See You in My Dreams, which is a movie I'll ask you about in a little bit. And I went back and read the transcript and I found it interesting. You said that I guess a kind of very important people in your life were Corey Blodgett and Ramona Reynolds. Who were they? Holy cow. (laughs) I do remember doing the interview with you. I don't remember specifically Corey and Ramona. Right, right. I had great fortune in that I had a lot of mentors from grade school on, but Corey Blodgett and Ramona Reynolds were my high school choral teacher and my high school drama teacher. Uh They knew at that point in high school that I really was fixated on having a career in the business. 
and they were very instrumental in just keeping me on that road, keeping me focused on it, and, and telling me to pursue it. Because at home, you were getting maybe some mixed messages? I did have mixed messages. <laughs> my mom was in full support of me pursuing my dreams. She drugged me to the to sing in a cherub choir when I was in Sacramento growing up. And my dad being in the world that he was in was a very realistic character. And I think, quote unquote, he gave me that proverbial you got a snowball's chance in hell of being having a career in that town. Well, you literally overheard him say that once, right? He said it to me. He said it to you. He said it to me. So what effect does that have on a well, young person? You know, I was very close to my dad in certain ways. He was pretty stoic. Uh-huh. He didn't give a lot away. Uh-huh. I don't remember my dad ever saying, I love you, son. Uh-huh. You know, you don't, you know, didn't get that out of my dad. But at the same time, I had numerous opportunities to go with my dad on these fishing expeditions in the Sierras as I was growing up with these men that he hung with. And that was, I think, invaluable in making me the kind of person that I am today. Probably not a lot of talking out there. Yeah, there was a lot of laughter and a lot of fun and... I know when I was ever around those guys and they were around women, they treated them with the greatest of respect. Uh You mentioned Ramona Reynolds. I remember being at a high school dance one time, and my folks were there as chaperones. And I remember getting home, and I can remember the moment that he was talking about, but I remember getting home and my dad saying, you dumb shit, if a woman comes up and speaks to you, get out of your fucking chair. (laughs) And I remember sitting there talking to Ramona, and she was like leaning down, talking to me, kind Uh of leaning on my shoulder, and we were having some conversation about something, but that was just typical of my dad's commentary. Right. Well, it sounds like, in a way... I don't know if these are the same kinds of characters you gravitated towards when you were watching movies as a kid, but he sounds like, and in a lot of ways, characters that you've been closely associated with sound like what they used to call the strong, silent type, yeah. right? The yeah. John Waynes, the yeah. Gary Coopers. Yeah. Is that actually what you gravitated towards when, when, with your own tastes, or is that just sort of the way it's worked out? I think it's the way initially that it worked out, but yeah. now it's what... I gravitate toward. Uh-huh. I just think there's something about somebody that's not flapping his lips all the time that <laughs> is a little more thoughtful about what comes out of his mouth that it's often more interesting. Yes. So you go off to college. I was in Oregon at that point. Family we, moved. We, we yeah. moved to Oregon when I was 15. And I went to the University of Oregon, and I graduated from a school called Clark College. It was in Vancouver, Washington, right across the bridge from Portland. My dad got transferred up there when I was 15 years old. Uh So I bid farewell to Sacramento and became an Oregonian. You go off, and then I guess was it after graduating, you start getting into the theater in Portland. And then I guess around that time, 1964, you have a very sudden and big loss, right? I mean, yeah. your dad died totally unexpected when I was down and going to school in Eugene. I mean, totally unexpected. And I'd had a, I'd had a really incredible encounter with him like a couple of weeks. Jesus Christ, you really got me with this one. A couple of weeks before that, in which he told me, I, basically, that he did love me. He said, because I was, I was not ever uh, academically oriented. I didn't have to get by. Uh I wasn't dumb. I just didn't like the routine, Uh the testing and all that business. It never made any sense to me. I had some courses that I excelled in that I really loved, and basically it was always because of great teachers. But the ones that just required reading and and dates and all that, I just, you know, it just... And I think that was much to my dad's chagrin somehow. I remember him always pissing and moaning about the guys with the college degrees that were coming in and getting the jobs away from him, uh-huh. from his cohorts. Uh-huh. 
and the fact that they didn't really know shit because they had no field experience. And I remember this conversation with my dad. He was working out in the garage. He was doing something with his lapidary work, which is something that I've picked up. Uh-huh. Rock, we're rock hounds in our family. Uh-huh. And, he, and I was apologetic or something to him about not doing better in school. And I remember him really saying something like, I don't really care what you do. I just want you to be happy. And I think he told me he loved me at that point in time. Killed me. One of your last encounters. One of my last encounters. And it was just a heart attack or something. Yeah, out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. Died in my mom's arms and on our living room floor there in Portland. So, you know, at that point, 1964, you're how old? 19. 19. How does something like that impact not just you, but your plans for what you're going to do with your life? Knowing that this was somebody who had been skeptical. Yeah. But was on your side. Yeah. I don't think that his skepticism ever made me veer one way or another off of my chosen path at that point. I, I knew that was for what it was. You know, my dad was my dad. Uh-huh. But you can't live your kid's life for him. Uh-huh. And I, for whatever reason at that age, I just this guy's not going to deter me from... I'll show him. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so it didn't. And I left basically because I was going to school and I laid out a term to spend in Portland with my mom. I lost my student standing. This is a, you know, Vietnam was going hot and heavy then. Uh-huh. And I had a friend of my dad's that came over and said, I'm going to take you out to the Air National Guard base. I know this guy, the commanding officer out there, and I want you to go talk to him. So I had an opportunity to not get drafted and shipped over to Vietnam, and I took it. Yeah. I joined the National Guard in Portland. And a year to the day, basically, maybe not exactly the day, but a a year later, I left my mom with tears in her eyes standing in the driveway bidding a farewell. This was a year after your father died. You're now heading to Hollywood. To Hollywood. I had an old Jag, an XK-150, a 1958. It was pretty racing, British racing green. And sitting next to me was a head of a marlin that I'd caught on a fishing trip with a guy down in Mexico. <laughs> it was quite a sight. I remember the bill was tapping on the window, and I had to stop somewhere not far into the trip and pad that up. It was driving me crazy. So when you headed down there, what was the plan? You didn't really know anybody in the business, right? Well, I did. I did know somebody in the business. There were a couple of people that were very instrumental in me sitting up and not being the typical starving actor with not a good job. Right. One of my college friends, fraternity brother, Richard Hare, was a guy that whose dad was connected to a man in a, in a construction business. And I ended up joining a labor union when I got down there. So I had finances. Uh-huh. Next door to my parents in Portland, there was a family whose son-in-law was an assistant director. And he came to visit one time. And I think his parents probably said, there's this kid next door that probably thinks he wants to be an actor. Would you sit down and talk to him for a minute? This is Phil Parslow? Phil Parslow. All right. And he'd just gotten off of a movie with Richard Brooks called The Professionals. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And we had this encounter, and I'm sure that he left thinking he'd never see me again. Ha ha. (laughs) And I got down to him, and, you know, I called him and said, I'm in town, and I'm working, and I'm working in the construction business. He said, oh, yeah, come on over. (laughs) And I ended up doing some work for For him. him. (laughs) Yeah. And one day I was up on top of a ladder painting a ceiling in his hallway, and this little guy with glasses and a suit comes in as a guy named Bob Thompson who's a casting guy at Universal. And I used to go from working construction to hanging out in Bob's office. I was one of those guys that hung out in a lot of offices, whether it was agents or casting people or whatever, when I first came to town. We should say, though, this particular office, so it's on the Universal lot. It's in a black tower. Right. Mm -hmm. And who do you encounter every day when you go there? 
There isn't there a security guy who happens to be the same guy who was at the same time waving Spielberg onto the lot. This kid who claimed, you know, he just sort of assumed was the son of an executive. That was the beginning of Spielberg. Scotty. Scotty, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was the sweetest man, that man. And a great guard. There's a lot of great guards at a lot of those studio gates, but he was exceptional. So you're hanging out there with, with Thompson now. Yeah. And what does that lead to? Bob, Bob. You know, there was a there was a contract program going hot and heavy that Monique James was running at that time, and at Universal. Bob, yeah, at Universal. He took, he he shied away from that for whatever reason. He didn't think that was something that I should pursue. However, he did send me to an agent, a man named Dick Bassman, and I signed with Dick. And I think it was I don't even remember. I can't. It was the forerunner to ICM. Yeah, General Artist GAC, Corporation. Yep. General Artist Corporation. Another place I hung out a lot, you know. But he was my first agent. The first interview that he sent me on was to meet a woman named Lillian Gallo at Fox. And Fox had a contract program. But it was basically made up of friends of friends or, you know, driven by nepotism. Mm -hmm. It wasn't taken nearly as seriously as the program at Universal. Right. The people worked at Universal. Right. Monique James got those guys on shows at Universal. Right. But I, you know, for the first time, I was drawing a paycheck. I was living out, you know, on Tennessee, out the back gate of at Fox and paying <laughs> $85 a month rent and drawing a paycheck for $85 <laughs> a week. So, you know, I was in hog heaven. Who else was part of the Fox uh, program at Tom that time? Tom Selleck had just come in out of, you know, he was at SC. He just graduated from SC, was a basketball player, and he was new to the program. Edie Williams was there, of course. So from this one program came the two great mustaches of our time. Yeah, that was before <laughs> either one of us had a mustache. Right, 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 right. Know. So they weren't as good as Universal about putting their young talent into movies, but you did... Have a small. What was your first small film role? Felony Squad, I believe, was the first thing that I did. Uh -huh. I found out it was really a, you know, I don't know. It was again, it was me being the lizard hanging out in the lounge. I, I found out where the scripts first came, at <laughs> Fox. Uh -huh. I, I knew pretty quickly that being a contract player that wasn't going to assure me of work. Right. But I found out early on that the scripts, and I think it was Jack Bauer that told me this, who was the head of casting there. The first place they landed was the legal department. <laughs> there were two women that worked in the legal department that I got to know very well. And they opened their door to me and said, anytime you want to come in and look at a script, come and look. So I'd go in there and I'd look for the one-liners or the two-liners, and right. then I'd go down to whoever was casting them and give them the name and the title or the number and the title of the script and say, I'd love to come and read for it when it comes. So I got work doing that. One, Not a lot, but I got work. Well, absolutely. And it sounds like one of the earliest film parts in 1969, even if it was just a blip, was a movie called Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which the female lead of was... To be my wife. A few years later, Catherine Ross, right. So Ten years later. It was ten years later. Ten years later. later. We what were you doing in that movie, and did you guys interact at all? Not at all. I, I saw her from afar a lot going into the commissary, basically. She was going with Conrad Hall, who was a cinematographer <laughs> in the film. And, right. You know, there was there's that whole hierarchy anyway. I, I wouldn't have, have approached anybody on that film that right. was an actor. You know, right. I was basically an extra on the piece. Card player number two, <laughs> to be specific, and I think the only, I'm positive the only reason my name is in the credits, I think it falls second from the last <laughs> on the crawl, is, is because I was a contract player. It was a contractual thing. Interesting. And I was literally a shadow on the wall. I had one line, <laughs> I'll take two, and it was off camera. Well... As the 60s came to an end, I, I know so, you know, increasingly did the studio system, which means they no longer had much of an incentive to develop young talent. Let that, you know, you're on your own at that point, right? So I guess everybody gets let go, right, sooner or later, and becomes free agents. And I just wonder for you, 
was that scary? And was that hard when you're now, you know, on your own? You know, there were so many great things came out of the studio relationship for me. And I think probably the greatest thing other than the, you know, working and certainly being an actor for the first time in my life, but I got a long-term relationship with the Newman clan. The great composers. Yeah. Yeah. And the doctors and the agents <laughs> and the producers. Right. It was a huge band of brothers, so to speak, that just influenced me no end. How'd you guys even I was I, I went with Melissa Newman. Melissa Newman was a contract player, and she was the son of Mark, who was an agent uh-huh. of composers. Uh-huh. And we were together for 10 years. Wow. Like, right up until the time when I met Catherine and... Uh, it's the, you know, the way thin things fall, but I'm forever grateful for having that relationship yeah. with that family. Yeah. And I carry a lot of that with me still today, that mm-hmm. love of all of them. Mm-hmm. But I think getting let go from the program was just, a, it was another chapter. It was exciting. I was going to get to go outside the studio and go on interviews because at that point I had a piece of film. And in those days, as you well know, you know, you needed a piece of film. Right. And well, I had these little clips, but I had relationships. And those. I had a solid relationship with this agent, Dick Bassman, mm-hmm. at that point in time. And it wasn't long after I left there that I went over to Paramount and I had an interview for Mission Impossible well, the last year. And that sort of uh, seems to have been the beginning of a run of stuff, including a lot of TV movies, miniseries. Yeah. Like yeah. you had a very solid run for, for I guess it would have been a, a couple of years, but that leads into what would have been, it looks like the first and for a while, the only star lead opportunity, yep. which was Lifeguard. And this is so interesting with, with your, you know, your life story, because just to set the scene, it's over at Paramount. It's a film about a lifeguard whose high school reunion and I guess also his rekindling of an old romance forces him to consider giving up the job he loves for white-collar work, and you're going to be the lead. You get, Talk about getting cast in that, getting to do it, and then what, what happened? happened? <laughs> <laughs> My folks were both lifeguards. Really? In, in a place called Washington Park in El Paso, Texas. That's a good fun fact. Yeah. yeah. In fact, there was a, one of the photographs that went out with with all the press clippings or press kits. Right. It was a picture of my mom and dad in their lifeguard togs and a picture of me in a pair of Speedos sitting <laughs> in between. That's classic. Great. Yeah. I knew about that film and couldn't get a meeting on it. I was with William Morris at the time. Ron Meyer and Bill Haber were my agents. Uh-huh. There was a guy named Miles Kuhn. I'm sorry, Miles, if you're out there, but I'm going to tell this on you. <laughs> who was handling the project? And I, I just, I couldn't get a meeting. I said, I called him, asked him. He said, No, they don't want to meet you. I got somebody else in mind. And I was living on the beach in Playa del Rey. I was in the ocean every day. I, I was a, always a swimmer, and I was, I was a water man, so to speak. A, a poor boy's waterman right. or a poor man's waterman. I wasn't an ocean lifeguard, right. but I was fit. One day I get a call from this guy, Miles Kuhn, and he said, they want to meet you on lifeguard. And I said, really? He said, yeah. And I said, okay. I went and had the meeting. I sat down with Dan Petrie, and I think Ron Cosla was there. And, the director and writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I asked Dan, I said, how did, how did this come about? He said, I was in a in our bathroom brushing my teeth and I hear Dorothea out in the other room calling me. She says, Danny, come and look at this guy that's in this movie. She says, you're perfect for it. I think it's Adam Rourke. <laughs> and he says, back to brushing his teeth, I know Adam Rourke is totally wrong for it. <laughs> anyway, he came back out and they sat there in a the bed and they didn't have a clue who I was. The movie was a picture called Frogs that I'd done for American International. Uh-huh. Adam Rourke was in the film, uh-huh. but they didn't have a clue who it. And they sat through it, watched it, got my name off the credits, called the agency the next day and had me come in. And I knew when I left there that I had to part in. You, know, I mean, you knew because you felt that it had gone well or they I actually just, told I you? I just knew that I had to part. Wow. For whatever it was. And I went from there to 
William Morris, and I had a row with this guy, Miles Kuhn, that Haber, Ron Meyer told me the other day, and maybe it was Haber. I just recently spoke to Ronnie for the first time in eons because of all this stuff that's going on with me right now, which always just warms my heart to hear from the two of them because I dearly love both of them. Yeah, yeah. But I remember Haber one time talk about leaning out into the hallway, and I was back there chewing on Miles. And, <laughs> anyway, I was never one to, and still am not, and this that's the way it is. That's one thing about my dad that, you know, I always spoke his mind. Yeah. You know, maybe didn't get in too deep sometime on some levels, but he always said what was on his mind, and I've always kind of been that way, too. Right. That leads to what happened. Well, so first, though, your first time making a movie where you're the top of the call sheet, you're in the whole movie, and comes out pretty well, right? Yeah, uh, Ann Archer and Kathleen Quinlan's first film. Right. I mean, my God. Right. You know. And now you've got to go sell the movie. Yeah. So what went wrong? I think just, again, that proclivity for speaking what's on one's mind rather than being smart and zipping your lip once in a while. In those days, you you know, this, there was no digital world in those days, and you had to physically go on the road and, and do the promotion. And I did for like six weeks with boxes of press kits in tow. Just to tell listeners what a what a press kit essentially is, what you want a journalist to know yeah. about you to when they're writing. Yeah, right? all the propaganda that goes <laughs> with, and, and, and including a lot of photo photographs, right, you know, right, and synopsis and breakdowns on the characters, right, all the stuff that writers write off of. Yes, included in that was a one sheet from the film. Now this is a film that Dan Petrie, the director. I know Kozlov felt the same way, but particularly Dan Petrie, who's one of the dearest human beings I've ever crossed paths with. Love him, loved his family, still love his family, who I run into occasionally. We took this thing serious about this is a kind of a coming-of-age story, not only for the young girl Kathleen played, but for this guy. It's grow up and move on into a world that he doesn't want to go to or mm -hmm. stay on the beach and do what he wants to continue doing. I know lifeguards that are in their 50s, yeah. 60s. Mm -hmm. They're civil servants. They're not guys hanging out on the beach. Mm -hmm. So the one sheet was me and a pair of Speedos, an animated one, and two big busted girls on either side. There wasn't a big busted girl in the film. <laughs> And across the top, it said, every girl's summer dream. To be with the lifeguard. Yeah, and that was the way they sold the movie. Mm -hmm. So I'd go out and do these, you know, fly in, fly out one night, spend a, you know, a couple of hours the next day doing interviews. And invariably, every time I'd get into an interview with somebody, they'd preface it with, and they'd seen the film. This isn't anything like I expected it to be based on the windsheet and all the rest of it that came with it. Which they would think is what? Like beach blanket bingo. Right. Exactly. So that's all I needed to hear. And I'd say, yeah, what about that? And then we'd have a conversation about <laughs> it and it ended up in a newspaper. So basically, you would essentially, in agreeing with the journalist, disparage the publicity campaign. Right. right. Completely. And that would get, in, that would get picked up because that's juicy. Yeah. And you think that that got back to Paramount. I know that it did. I've, re I've read it in newspapers. I've, I've, my, there was a, I've still got my mom's home up in Portland, and she had the archive on me. <laughs> and there's a certain pile of it that is all those old clippings, and I was horrified when I read it. When you read it. What a stupid shit and so a smart ass and everything else. <laughs> How do you think Paramount? always said, well, you finally got there, and you got there your own way. You know, it's like, <laughs> and it's like, you know, yeah, but boy, not too smart along the road. Well, so what was the actual fallout? Did anyone at Paramount come I never down? worked at Paramount again. But nobody said, like, you're never going to work here. No, just... I never had that conversation. Yeah. Charlie Bluedorn was running Gulf and Western at that time, and 
you know, there were a bunch of kind of a boys club there that was. That was the know, Robert Evans days, right? Evans was, I'm not sure Evans was even. Maybe in not there quite yet. yet. I don't yeah. think quite. Yet. Yeah. So that having happened, do you just sort of stop getting opportunities to be leads? Things got slow. I didn't didn't do films for quite a while. So what did you do? Movies for television, and I worked as a, you know, I had a beautiful apartment over there, six little units overlooking the San Diego freeway and Church Lane right behind the VA, and I was the resident gardener, and, you know, worked on the places, and was that tough? You and, might... I, and I, at that point, had done a few commercials, uh-huh. which allowed me to, you know, I had these false death beer commercials that were running that were quite lucrative in those days anyway. Yeah. So I got by on that. Was it tough, though? You know, you go out to the store or whatever, you see somebody, hey, Sam, what are you up to these days? I heard that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I still hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I say, I don't know, man. When did you get out of bed? You right. know, I'm working. <laughs> right, right. You know, it's always a weird kind of conversation <laughs> to have with a stranger. So when did that dry spell of sorts kind of come to an end? You know, there were, in in '74 I did Aspen. '76 I did Once an Eagle. Those were both big, long form things at Universal. Mm-hmm. And I was doing the Yellow Rose. And at that time, I was writing. I was thinking about writing something for myself, which I'm still thinking about. Mm-hmm. It's probably never happened at this point. But I was doing the Yellow Rose, and one day I remember sitting in a makeup trailer with Sybil Shepard. Mm-hmm. And she's over there looking in the mirror at her beautiful self. And, <laughs> and I saw Peter last night. He's doing a movie with Cher. And, He's looking for a Gary Cooper on a motorcycle. It was Peter Bogdanovich. Yeah. Yes. I threw your name in <laughs> or something to that effect. Right. Gary Cooper was one of my favorite actors. Okay. Probably my single most favorite actor. Makes sense. Anyway, I was over in Hawaii. I think Catherine and I were on our honeymoon. Mm-hmm. And I got a call from Ron Meyer. He said, Peter Bogdanovich wants to meet you on this Thing, mask that he's doing. I said, what the fuck, Ronnie? I'm on my, you know, I'm on my honeymoon, man. He says, well, he wants to meet you next week. And I just said, if they can't wait, I can't make it. Uh-huh. And I went back to the holly or went and took a swim or whatever I was doing. And I told Catherine about it. And she snuck back up to the main desk and called Meyer and said, I'll get him there. We'll be <laughs> home next week. Because she saw the opportunity. Well, she just at that period of time, was smarter than I was. <laughs> Whether that holds true today, who knows? It's up for debate, yeah. <laughs> so you go back, you go, you audition, or, or read, or they just gave it to you? Yeah, I think I, I don't even remember reading. Yeah, so you're, you're now opposite Cher on a production that famously was a little bumpy, right? Yeah, I guess. You know, Cher's a, such a dynamic woman, and so self-assured for every reason that one should be self-assured and she's such a brilliant talent that i don't i don't know that peter knew how to reckon with her or she with him you know it's often the case with those kind of talents and you know sometimes they click completely and sometimes there's sparks flying you know i was going to say in a way it's a Gaga-esque trajectory for her to end up in movies, and ultimately she won an Oscar for Moonstruck a couple years later. But the idea that it's not your conventional, it's not somebody that came out of, you know, Strasburg. They're doing their own thing, right? And to come off of, out of the music world and go into that, to me, is just what a transition that is. Yeah. Mind-boggling. So after Mask, it seems like there was... You're back in a steady flow of character parts, many meaty, memorable supporting parts in projects on TV and film. I remember just in one year, you were in both Gettysburg and Tombstone, sort of maybe cementing this idea that you're the the guy to go to for roles on horses or in the Old West or whatever, the whole cowboy idea, which I think became 
basically continued to build right up to and including the Big Lebowski, right? Yeah. Can you set up what it was like to have that happen? Was that sort of something you were happy about or baffled by? And then how the Big Lebowski made you look at that whole dynamic a little differently? Yeah. I think it was by design because I really it really spoke to me. I think a lot of it was my family's heritage, which goes back to the 1800s. And a grandfather, Kenny, I'm not sure how many generations removed, was a surgeon at the Battle of San Jacinto. Wow. He was later the Texas State Surgeon. You know, so the Sparkses are in deep, and that's mm-hmm. with my mom's side. Mm-hmm. Well, that just totally took me out of where I was going to go with it, the Western game. Yeah, yeah. There's another thing I want to share with you, too, yeah. Scott. When I was doing these Falstaff beer commercials, yeah. I was over in Fernley, Nevada, doing these spots with another actor named Mike Whitney, who's now dead. But a guy came up to me, a Wrangler. I was sitting in a saddle, and this guy came up and put his hand on my thigh, and he said, are you Nelson Elliott's son? This was a long time ago. Uh-huh. I said, yes, sir. And he said, I loved your dad. And it went on from there. There was this, you know. And he knew your dad? He knew my dad. And that was, that was a special moment. Because he made he said something that made you yep. think about your dad differently than you had. It just connected it all. It just it was like my dad somehow knowing that it wasn't the dumb shit that he thought I was. And right. I wanted to be an actor. You know. Anyway, the Western thing, yeah, it it really worked, and I'd always loved doing it. I loved being outdoors. I loved the fact that the outdoors was a primary character in the Western genre. I love the men that gravitated toward those. I love the horses. I love the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I love the simplicity of the form. There wasn't a lot of gray area. It was black and white. But I did get to a point where I thought, fuck, am I ever going to get out of this thing? Because it, it was what I was doing. Yeah. And I was down in New Mexico. I think it was New Mexico. Jesus. I'm sure it was New Mexico. It was on a John Milius film. Mm-hmm. And I got a script down there. This was a picture called The Rough Riders for TNT. Mm-hmm. And I was playing like a supporting role, but it was God, it was one of my favorite roles. John Buford, who was an officer in the, for the Northern Forces. So anyway, I get the script, and it's from the Coen brothers. And I can't wait to get off the set. It's <laughs> delivered to me at the set. Right. Can't wait to go read it. Figuring out finally it's going to be something else other than this Western thing because it's a you know it's a Coen Brothers movie. It's got to be right. some crazy right. character. They don't do westerns, right? <laughs> and I look at the script, and first it's a description. There's a song, "Tumbling Tumbleweeds," playing in the background. This kind of Southwest accent, sounding not unlike Sam Elliott says <laughs> on the page. And then there's a description of him when he shows up, you know, dressed as a drugstore cowboy, looking not unlike Sam Elliott. And I just thought, what the <laughs> fuck, man? I'm never going to get out of this. <laughs> and I went, I remember going to this set the next day and talking to John, who well knew the Coens. And I said, what do you think, man? It's, it's, it's not much of a part, but he said, what do you mean, what do I think, man? You got to do it. <laughs> there's no not doing it. Right, right, right. You know? Anyway, I went and did it. And, that led to the contender. Well, yes, but before we, I, I'm gonna, I definitely want to ask you about that. But before we get there, I mean, I did sell that that encounter short, didn't I? No, well, just I mean, that's a character that for many people is, comes right to mind when they hear the name Sam Elliott, among others. But sitting there at the bar with his beer, chatting with the dude, and among other things, just. Obviously, at first, there's this feeling like, here we go again. But on the other hand, is that the moment where you kind of learn to just embrace it because it's there and you can have some fun with totally. it? Totally. I wouldn't have been working for the Coen brothers had it right. not been that. Right. And you had uh, fun with it. And I had a ball with it. You know, I watched Jeff's career from long before I ever came to California. Because you you're know, basically contemporaries, and right? And were contemporaries. Yeah. And, you know, when he was working on Sea Hunt with his right. brother on his right. dad's show. And right. Jeff was great from the get-go, and I always thought, man, the fuck is that guy so good, so young? Right. Because you know, he was always good, right. always interesting. Right. 
and I have a chance to get to know him. Everybody thinks we all know each other right in this town. <laughs> I'd never crossed paths with Jeff before right. I walked in that bowling alley the other day. You know? And when you are working with him on a project that is, I mean, look, we all now, 20 years later, know and love that movie. It's a classic. People can't get enough of it. I've probably seen it a dozen times myself. But I would think, even though it's the Coen brothers, which comes with a certain degree of you know credibility and confidence, you're reading it. I would think it the, the whole thing sounds pretty nutty. It did sound totally nutty. I'd seen Raising Arizona a few right, times. Right. I hadn't some seen some of their earlier stuff, which I'm very sorry that I hadn't have seen it all now. But you don't know. Never know when it's good. And or I, when was it's there, I was there two days. <laughs> that was it. And it was all in that bowling alley. With Jeff there, yeah. Yeah. And I and I I knew I was in deep in terms of the other actors, you know, that were working on the film. There were a lot of good actors. They were quite an ensemble. Yeah. The other thing was the second day we did all the stuff where I'm looking into the camera. (laughs) That's tough, right? And about take 12 or something like that. I just, I looked at the brothers. They're both sitting there by the camera. And and I said, you guys got to tell me what the fuck you want here because I mean I'm, I've done this thing and it seems to me like it's the same every time right and he said oh no we had to take three man we just love seeing you do it <laughs> and I ended up doing like 15 takes or some shit you know? that's, that's so funny I love I love those guys and as right. you mentioned you mentioned in jest Coen brothers don't do not do westerns yeah right 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 I just saw their latest Western film. Oh, right. That was the best Western I've seen in eons. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Oh, my God. Did they try to get you in that? I can't imagine. They did not. I was talking to my wife about that. talking to Catherine about that last night. It seemed to me that there was a rumbling about it when I was working on the ranch. That they had reached out? That maybe, but I'm not even going to go there and say <laughs> that. I think it was me wishing that they had. I'm wondering which of the vignettes. It, it had to have been in the old guy. There's only one old guy in the movie, <laughs> man. And it was that piece with Zoe. Oh, my God. That's great. Oh, God, she was brilliant. So what is it with those guys? Why are they so good? They're, they're just smart guys. Yeah. You know, number one, they're brilliant filmmakers. Mm-hmm. They're like Bradley. Right. You know, they're brilliant filmmakers and they, who happen to be super intelligent. Right. Brilliant writers. They just, and they like to have fun. Yeah. So from that, you st- it was not like the end of the cowboy kind of thing. You were, of course, the Marlboro Man years later in Thank You for Smoking, which was great for Jason Reitman. The Golden Compass, you had a kind of part like that. But the first job after The Big Lebowski, as you referenced, was one that probably for viewers and maybe even for you was sort of unexpected you're the chief of staff for the president of the united states because rod Lurie wanted to work with you in the contender two years after the big lebowski yeah. what did you make of that you get a call to play you hadn't been getting calls like that right no and the, when i talked to rod about it it was so kind of offbeat for me at least i felt that it was I don't think I had a lot of confidence in playing a lot of things other than these Western things either. That's maybe one reason that I always gravitated toward them. Uh-huh. That was a safe zone for me. Uh-huh. I knew that inside out, and I could ride a horse. Yeah, Rod, I asked him, I said, how do, how do, you know, this is an amazing piece of work. I got Joan Allen and Jeff, Gary Oldman. Uh-huh. I said, how do I fit into that thing? He said, I don't know, man. I was watching a big Lebowski the other night, and I just want to see more of you and Jeff. And that, <laughs> that was what he said. That's great. He said, I want to put you in a three-piece suit. Cut off that fucking mustache, I think he said. <laughs> Maybe that was Ron Meyer. That was Ron I was going to say, I know Ron one. Lurie. I don't think he'd pick that fight with no, you. <laughs> that was Ron Meyer's advice one time when we were in New York. He said, get rid of that moustache. He right. called it a moustache. Why was that important? I think, I think I was bemoaning doing the westerns. Right. I remember specifically we were leaving the Plaza Hotel, going up to have dinner in a little Italian place up the street. And he said, for one thing, you had to cut off that moustache. What was your feeling about that, do you think? I mean, because it's still here, obviously. Oh, well, I don't know. I, I, I'm not connected to this moustache. No? No. I'm happy to cut it off. And you did for the contender, right? I'm I trying did to, for yeah. the contender. I did a couple of years ago, you know, for Justified. Yeah, right. 
it's one of the great blessings of having hair on one's head. <laughs> you can either work with it or work without it. Right. If you're an actor, I'm speaking. Right. So it's a, it's a really changes one's look, needless to say. For sure. Well, I want to ask you about what maybe five or six years ago happened that sparked this career renaissance that we're in the middle of witnessing right now. I don't think that's overstating it, where you're getting some of the best parts you've ever played. You're giving some of the best performances you've ever given, and people are being more appreciative probably than they've ever been. But it started kind of inauspiciously, if I have it correctly, because it all goes back to an Adult Swim stop-motion animated show called Robot Chicken. Robot Chicken. <laughs> How does that give way to what we're looking at now? I've been very fortunate in my career lately, particularly, but in the last 20 years, I guess, doing voiceovers and stuff. I got an offer to do this voiceover for the Adult Swim channel to play this totally wacky part in Robot Chicken. And right. so I jumped at it. I mean, it was funny, really funny. And I got nominated for an Emmy for it. <laughs> I don't know, it was a daytime, nighttime, right. early morning <laughs> Emmy or some kind of an right. Emmy. And I go to this thing, the, the award ceremony, with my daughter, Cleo. Mm -hmm. And we sat right behind Lily Tomlin, who was nominated in the same category for doing a voiceover for the National Geographic Channel, as I recall, on mm -hmm. African elephants. Mm -hmm. Totally different than right. the reason that I'm there. <laughs> And she won in the category. Right. And I remember going to her and congratulating her and giving her a big hug. And we had a moment, just a moment. Mm -hmm. And I'd never crossed paths with Lily before. So Cleo and I went on home, back to our worlds. And I don't know, I don't even know how long it was after that. One night the phone rang and it was Chris White's and he said, Sorry for calling you. It's late or some weird thing. But my brother's doing this movie with Lily Tomlin, and he wants you to read the script. Would you read it? I said, of course I would. So he sent me the script, and I read the script. And I thought, oh, shit, man. It was a, about as meaty of a role as I've ever seen, given the size of it. It just went from A to Z, in my mind, anyway. This is in what would become Grandma, and you were originally, when you're getting the script, being asked to play a biker with long hair and just yeah. kind of... Which I didn't have. I don't think I had a mustache, but I had very short hair. I went and got together with Paul White's, Chris's brother, after <laughs> I'd read it. And we talked, I even called about a wig for the piece. And I looked into getting a mustache made. And then I started reading the fucking script. And I thought, why is this guy a biker? And I talked to Paul about it. And I said, what the fuck? Why is this guy a biker? <laughs> he says, well, I don't know. I just thought, you know, I remember in Mask, you were working on a bike. There's a sequence in there where I'm working on a bike right. in, on the page. And I said, oh, that was cool. And it might be cool if Lily's got this biker in her past. And I said, hey, man, I don't want to wear a wig for a movie. You know. <laughs> anyway, I ended up doing it and not wearing a wig and just played this pretty much straightforward, dope-smoking guy. Yeah. So that goes eventually to premiere at Sundance. But at a Sundance, by which time you've already made another movie, I'll See You in My Dreams, which is kind of amazing when people realize it's a from a 31-year-old writer, director, editor. I don't know if he'd even made a movie before. I don't. He'd done a few, done a few little student things. films. Right. So he wants to make a movie about a widower and the guy she now finds new love with. And again, he's 31, but he's writing about people at that stage of life and somehow gets Blythe Danner and you to believe he's, in him. He's a brilliant script. So, and he's a very persuasive young man. Mm -hmm, Brett, Brett Haley. Haley. Love Brett Haley. So that's an 18-day shoot where you're playing in this case really like a a, a gentleman a was the first leading man that was out and out a leading man role right i mean that was the romantic lead right. i guess is the better way to put it and blythe danner who we had on this podcast at that time it was just one of our first guests mm -hmm. was saying that how much she loved working with you and and how it could have gone 
wrong in a way because, I mean, she herself had been married, I think, for 33 years. Her husband died of cancer years before. She'd had no subsequent relationships. She said, I haven't kissed another man since then. I never kissed a man with a mustache. That too. (laughs) So now she gets the set on the first day of this 18-day shoot with a 31-year-old director and somebody she'd never met before, you. And the first day they ask for the, the big kissing scene. Right. We're in a car shooting that in front of her house. I'm dropping her off. That was when she told me she'd never kissed a guy with a mustache before. <laughs> she was very nervous. But it was a beautiful little movie. It was, it was, Blythe was just wonderful to work with. The sweetest of women I've crossed paths with, maybe. And Brett was totally up to it. You know, he just got it out of everybody. He knew what he wanted. He was one of those guys who just knows what he wants. Knows when he gets it. And again, good enough to get into and premiere at the 2015 Sundance Film Festival. So you've got Grandma there. You've got I'll See You in My Dreams there. And the hat trick, Joe Swanberg's Digging for Fire, all at the same festival. Are you sort of looking around saying, you know, how did I wind up at this in this situation? Of course. I mean, of course. It's know, quite a moment. But, yeah. Like any other moment. Just had three movies at Sundance. At Sundance. <laughs> Just a little. I mean, it was it was cool, but time means everything, I guess. Right, and, and time means a strange thing. And relationships, because then the next big hit is the hero, where yeah. you're back two years later, I think, with Brett. Yeah. yeah. When we went, when we did, I'll see you in my dreams. I don't think Blythe was keen on doing the marketing into the game. Yeah. As I recall, and I ended up traveling with Brett a lot. Brett and I, did, you know, we knew each other, but we didn't know each other as well as we came to know each other. Mm-hmm. We spent, you know, a good month on the road and traveling and yeah. had a lot of meals together, shared a lot of plane rides together, had a few drinks together, and just got to know each other. And he and Mark Bash, his writing partner, wrote this script. It, it, the first time when I got a look at it, it was called Iceberg. Mm-hmm. And it was astounding how close it was to me in some ways well we should in just some ways not not at right. all like me because i'm it's like i'm divorced and Catherine's playing my ex-wife in it and just to give people a, who, who haven't and i have a very it. solid relationship with cleo who's my daughter yes <laughs> like the one that i had with Kristen ritter right who's who's who played my daughter great one, yeah basically it's an aging movie star facing a terminal illness and trying to get one last great role, settle his relationships. It's great. All right. So as we basically come to the main attraction here, you're after that, I think doing some, some TV series work. You were back with Lily Tomlin and Grace and Frankie. Then you're doing another show for Netflix, The Ranch. How do you first hear about what would ultimately become, I think the fourth or fifth version of A Star is Born? And did it strike you as anything particularly special when you did? I'm sure I heard about it through agents. I thought probably like a lot of people thought, what the fuck, really? Another the one. Fourth one. <laughs> They're going to do another one. <laughs> I'd not seen all of Bradley's work at that point. I'd seen a few of his films, and I always thought, Jesus Christ, man, this guy's good. But he always, there was a lot of silly shit there, too. And I always wonder about that. Yeah. I've come to really appreciate that and all those actors that do that stuff because I think it takes something that I don't have. Uh It just takes some special thing Uh to pull that off Uh and make it entertaining. I had just seen twice, I watched it twice, American Sniper, Uh which killed me. Yeah. Because I I have that military bone in my body like I have that cowboy bone in Mm -hmm. my body. And I thought Bradley was brilliant in it. And when the opportunity came to meet with him, I mean, certainly, are you kidding me? I'm not going to go sit down with Bradley Cooper. Right. He's talking about directing his first movie. Right. And we had this back and forth where we couldn't get together, and finally we did get together, and I went to his home one night. and, And I remember... As soon as we locked eyes, man, we were connected. I mean, there there was no doubt about What do you attribute that to? Just honesty, Uh directness, no attitude, no bullshit. Uh 
all that stuff you look for in a relationship with somebody, whether it's a personal relationship or a working relationship. Right. It just opens the door for everything. Yeah. You know, and we laughed and talked about our families, talked about our moms and talked about his vision for this thing, his, his vision for these brothers within the thing. It was pretty special. So what Bradley's asking you to do here, just in case there's somebody out there still who hasn't seen A Star is Born, it doesn't seem like there are many, but basically wants you to play Bobby Jackson Maine's older brother who has experienced their parents in a very different way than Jackson did and who had his own dreams that have been unfulfilled while he's watched and been a part of helping Jackson to fulfill his own. Mm-hmm. What about that, you know, as you're talking with him and deciding whether you're going to do this and and if you can do it, you know, would you make it that part, which is different than, you know, there have been these earlier iterations of A Star is Born, mm-hmm. but this is taking it in very different directions. It's not like this, if Judy Garland came back from the dead and watched this, she's not going to think, right. you know, they cop, they ripped off my movie. Right. So what, what, what was that as you try to figure out your guy? I think on some level that Bobby... That side of Jackson just rounded out the Jackson main character. It gave him backstory. I remember the New York Times talking about that first scene being the, the garbage dump where you found all the stuff out about him. It was, that's the only negative thing I've ever read about that movie. But I can understand why they went there because it gives you backstory. Right. They weren't very kind in how they referred to the backstory. Right, right, right. But an opportunity to be that guy. You know, it's it's an interesting thing, I think, with siblings. You know, they don't often give get the same treatment from their parents. I think probably some of it comes directly from how the parents decide to treat their kids, and a lot of it comes from how the kids deal with the parents or what they draw out of them. And obviously Bobby and Jackson didn't get the same thing out of this dad. Bobby hated the dad. Uh-huh hated that he was an alcoholic, hated that he took Jackson down that road. Because that's, I think, the early days of Jackson's demise was when he was with his dad. Uh And at the same time, I think Bobby was jealous on some level. And maybe not jealous of the fact that Jackson had the career that he had, but jealous that he pulled it off, jealous that he had the goods. But it's also, I mean, probably worth noting that he might in some way envy the fact that Jackson can have this illusion of the dad being a good guy because he didn't have to live through the the crappiest yeah. times. Yeah. I think probably that he, I think on some level, I, you know, you come when you come in and we're so far down the line in the relationship, I have no doubt that there was a period of time when Bobby wasn't that way about the dad. I mean, he's been taking care of this kid since he was a kid, Uh a young kid playing the piano. There was mention of that. It may not be in the film anymore, but there was mention of that in the very beginning. Uh And there was mention of it, I think, in the scene with Gaga at the rehab center where he comes in. I remember the look on his face or something he says. And I came in and he was performing he was singing or he was singing for us or something right i mean bobby's really the dad because what would the age difference approximately be with me and bradley yeah i don't know 20 years so it's feasible it could be right at least of course why did bradley's version of jackson speak in the way that he does with that kind of deep draw i don't know i think he just he had this idea that you really have to let. I've heard Bradley speak to that quite a bit, but I'm not sure that I'm the one to speak to it. I think that he felt like because they were brothers, they should have a similar tone in their voice. And I don't know but how it, high you can go. But yeah, <laughs> it wasn't going to go that way. No, <laughs> it wasn't going to be a falsetto for me. Right, right, right. But the other thing is, is I think that he just he copied the voice. Right. No, it makes because sense. you know, and he says to he he says, you know, in that again in that first scene, where they're talking about the dad and they're head to head, he says, you know, 
You just never, you had a voice, but you couldn't fucking write. That's you it. didn't have anything to say. That's it. That's really like says the to him. ultimate knife. That's, that's, that's brutal. Yeah. <laughs> brutal. New York Times review that you referred to earlier, they did have that one comment, but they followed it very quickly with the following. Quote, in one of the finest scenes, Bobby just wordlessly drives away from Jack, and Mr. Elliot lets you see the ferocity of the brothers' love and their pain in eyes that have begun to water and in a stone face that will shatter, close quote. Talk about, that was got to be one of the most emotionally demanding scenes. I don't know how many takes you did. I just One, did one take. the first take. It's pretty amazing. We did two. That was the first take. Where do you go mentally to do a scene like this? Just, just be in it. Just be in it. Yeah. You know, it was the end of that arc. It was the end of that beautiful arc between the brothers that, you know, was really just mortar right. throughout this incredible tale. Right. It was Gaga and Bradley on that incredible ride they went on and all that brilliant music along the way, all those other supporting people along the way. And it was just the final stages of that whole thing you know but we do get to see you again because somebody who i think you've maybe came to know as stephanie right or maybe that i don't know it sounds like that's how you referred to her lady gaga where the scene basically at the end on the floor dealing with the picking up the pieces what did you make of working with her again like Cher, very unconventional performer i would guess yeah by then i'd i felt like i kind of knew her but it was from afar, and it wasn't until, you know, we got to work in the hotel room one day, and, and I saw her coming and going. Yeah, so I didn't really know her well, and, and that scene in the script was originally Andrew Dice Clay. It was the dad coming to comfort the daughter, which made total sense, story-wise. Uh-huh. And I'd rapped on the film. I rapped the day that we did that scene in the driveway. And I got a text out of the blue about a week later from Bradley. We texted a lot while we were doing the film, uh-huh. or prior to most of it, but during a little bit. Including when it looked like you weren't even going to be able to do it. Yeah, exactly. That was a ugh, that was an awful period of it when I didn't, I really I, I, there was a moment when I said, I can't do it, man. Just, because the ranch was not going to release you or whatever? There. They weren't going to let me in there, and they were going to Coachella you know, and it was that opening sequence that I started with that was my first day of work. Imagine how close. I ended up doing that in a parking lot at the Greek Theater. Oh, okay. And just surrounded it with trailers with and people. But that and I walked that... in there, man, I didn't know a soul. There. The <laughs> only guy I knew there was Bradley, and I right. barely knew Bradley, and there was fucking Lady Gaga. <laughs> what the fuck? But isn't that amazing how life, I mean, you came that close. I don't know how Bradley got helped to finagle it so that you didn't have to. He do said, it. I'm not going to let you go. Right, right. test. I'm not going to let you go. And the next day they changed the schedule. The ranch just kind of came. No, not the ranch. Oh, Warner Brothers. Oh, Warner Brothers did. They so, said, we'll do them later. We'll pick it up later. But that's how close that's, it came to you not being in the movie at yeah, all. Yeah, and that's how responsible Bradley is for everything that happens in this movie. That's amazing. That's the most important thing to yeah. understand. There's no Bradley. There's no movie. This movie could never have come to be what it is with somebody else at the head, ever. Well, with the last minute or two, I just want to do some big picture, just closing first thing that kind of comes to your mind. The response to this movie, you we can gauge it from reviews, we can gauge it from the box office. I guess I want to ask, have you ever felt a part of something remotely no. like this? No, no. What I've, is it? I've had good fortune in, over the years to work with some really talented people both in front of and behind the camera. I've had nice notices over the years, but I've never had anything. This thing's a fucking tidal wave, man. It's That's right. Just, I've never seen anything like it that. It needs a lifeguard. <laughs> it's astounding. Right. It's astounding. So We're in Toronto. I've wept seeing this film. I was at that I've screen. seen it in a couple of, you know, stages. Yeah. The earlier when I saw it, I, I walked out of the thing, what the fuck? Man? It was <laughs> given. It was uh, it's rough. granted it was a first assemblage. Right. But there were no relationships. There were no characters. And then the second one, it was really all Gaga mm-hmm. and Bradley. Mm-hmm. And it was beautiful. And it was the music. But it wasn't the rest of us. And then when I saw Toronto, 
I thought all that stuff came back in, and there was all these full-blown supporting characters. And it, the relationship between Gaga and Bradley had been polished to a... And the music had been brought to what it was. It, it just destroyed me. I walked backstage, Stephanie said, you okay? And I was fucking... I was a weeping man. Uh-huh. Because of the story or because you realized because you were it was, a part of something? Because it was all there, and I realized that I was a part of something really fucking unbelievable. Right. And what a gift this man had given me. And the, and the music, the music, just, the music is it's brilliant. And everybody, you know, I don't know. I could just sit here for the next hour and just say <laughs> how incredible I think the film is. Well. But to answer your question, no, not even remotely have I ever been involved in anything like this. And don't expect that I ever will be again. Well, and what you've called like a tidal wave, this rising tide has lifted everybody. Everybody is being celebrated rightly. The movie's tremendously successful. Bradley and Gaga, everybody's talking about. But we should not forget in this, Sam Elliott's got a Critics' Choice nomination, a SAG Award nomination, right? any number of critics awards and various things. And we still got a few more weeks of this thing. So the question is, how does it feel to, in some ways, you know, everybody's always kind of known about you. And I think it's often for a lot of people, like, I know that when you come on, there's a good feeling. I like this guy. I've seen him forever. But to actually have people sort of stop and appreciate, yes, it's about this role, but it's, I think it's also about the, the, body of work that's body. right it's, so what is that like to have that happen it hasn't good. happened i mean any right. kind of you know that kind of recognition where you know that it's from the heart that it's not bullshit that somebody's <laughs> given you you know it's a wonderful thing you know and, and again i just bradley gave me the opportunity to do something i'd never done before and I think that he was keen on doing that from the beginning. I remember him telling me in that meeting, I want to see you play this guy that's this bitter character that, you know, he had it in mind in the beginning, and he had the goods, you know. Bradley, he asked all of us to trust him in the beginning. He asked me that night when I was walking out of that place, he said, man, if you just trust me, you'll be glad you did this. And if you can trust somebody, you can get at the truth. And that's the search. I know Gaga's on that forever, right. looking for the truth. Bradley's on it as a filmmaker and as an actor, too. And that's the most fun, when you can get at the truth. And if the audience believes what you're peddling to them. Then, Last question. You know, In this moment, which has got to feel pretty special, if your dad could see this, what would he make of it all? That's a tough one. That's a tough one to answer. I know he'd be very proud of me. Maybe as much for the fact that I stuck to my guns as as that I made it as an actor, that I fucking did what I wanted to do. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I my appreciate pleasure, it. Scott. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.